0: In John chapter four, Jesus describes the kind of worshipers the father seeks. Verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now for the next few minutes, stay tuned to worship in spirit and truth with Pastor Jeff Scoggins.
1: Today's message picks up where we left off last week on some specific sacrifices themselves. If you were here, you will remember the ridiculous story that I told of the backcountry rescuer who was met by indifference by the people he was rescuing. In other words, they, it was like they didn't even pay attention to the fact that they were being rescued. They didn't really fight being rescued But neither did they really respond to being rescued. Now, it was a ludicrous story if it was true. It it was just a made-up story to make a point. The point being that one who is being rescued is not indifferent to the process. If you're in trouble and you're hanging on the side of a cliff or drowning in the ocean, you don't ignore the life preserver that's thrown out to you. You grab hold. You respond to the rescue And in the same way we saw last time, we must respond to our Savior. Because He is involved in a spiritual rescue of our lives, right? The problem, though, was that interacting with God is quite a bit different than interacting with a human rescuer. Because of the simple fact that God is invisible. How in the world Do we interact with an invisible God in a spiritual rescue? How does that work? And in answering that question last time, we looked at four of the Old Testament sacrifices. Seems like a strange place to look to answer that kind of a question. But it was amazing what we found out. With only a surface glance at at four of these sacrifices, we learned a number of things. Let me just review them quickly with you, some of the lessons that we learned. Number one, we interact with the spiritual realm through ritual. We interact with the spiritual realm through ritual, rituals that have meaning. That was the first thing we saw. Number two, God has a protocol to follow in approaching Him in certain situations. Even when we're bringing offerings or gifts like the people we're bringing in these sacrifices, there was a specific protocol that they had to follow in order to have their sacrifice accepted. Number 3, our sins are covered by Christ's sacrifice, but they remain in the sanctuary until cleansing day. And I bring that out because that's going to be very important to something that we're looking we're going to be looking at in the future. Number 4, Jesus' sacrifice covers us until we have the opportunity to repent. Or even in the case that we don't have the opportunity to repent. We need not fear losing our salvation on a fluke. There are a lot of people that live their lives in fear. What if I die before I have a chance to confess my latest sin? The Old Testament sacrifice shows us that that is not a fear we need to have. Again, you're going to have to go back to the last one to figure out how we got there. Number five, we shouldn't give offerings just to show our repentance for sin or out of duty. We should also give offerings out of gratitude and joy. These voluntary gifts, we saw, are part of the process of atonement. What is atonement again? Do you remember? Atonement, well, the one that everybody knows, it's it's forgiveness, right? But atonement, we saw, goes beyond that. Atonement comes from three English words, at one meant. Reconciling a relationship. These voluntary gifts that we give of joy and of gratitude are part of restoring our relationship with God. Number six, our gifts to God should be the best we have. They must cost us. Number seven, the more our gifts cost us, the more valuable it is to God, not because He needs the gift, but because the value of the gift reflects the state of the heart that gives it. Number eight, when we give offerings to God, offerings of joy to God, He turns around and blesses us specifically for that gift. It was a neat sacrifice that we looked at on that one. And the last one, the greatest gift that we can give to God is ourselves. As a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. A living sacrifice, wholly committed, and loyal to Him. Okay. That was what we learned last time from the four sacrifices. And we imagined ourselves back in the desert sanctuary early in the morning. The sun is coming up over the hills. Remember that? And we were watching as the people sacrificed their animals in meaning-filled rituals. And so we're going to pick up there again. Go back again in your minds in time. We're standing in the courtyard of the sanctuary, sand under our feet. The altar of sacrifice is before us. It's a a large bronze altar, and on each corner uh, is a horn, four horns, one on each corner of this altar. The people are in a variety, in the middle of a variety of sacrifices, different sacrifices for different things. So the priest waves forward the next man who is holding the rope of a young bull. For this situation, it's good to realize that this could not be a female cow. It had to be a male bull. The man was a tribal elder. He was a leader in his tribe, and he has come to offer a sin offering. The last ones we looked at were there was the daily sacrifice, there was the the uh, grain offering and a couple other ones. This one was called a sin offering. It's also called a purification offering. The sin offering was the one sacrifice, the one offering that was absolutely required. All the other sacrifices were voluntary. The sin offering was the one that was required. It was an obligation, even a debt that a person had to pay. And it's interesting to note that someone who had sinned was not even allowed to offer one of the other offerings until he had fulfilled his obligation of the sin offering. Wasn't allowed to. Because you can't give a gift, a free will offering. You can't give a gift when you owe a debt. Does that make sense? Somebody owes you 10 bucks. And he comes up to you and he says, I know I owe you 10 bucks, and I'm going to pay it sometime. But in the meantime, here's a gift. I just want to be nice. Here's 10 bucks as a gift. I'll pay what I owe you later. Your mind is thinking what? That doesn't make sense. This is what you owe me. Pay me what you owe me first. Then we'll talk about a gift, right? You don't pay. You don't give a gift before you pay your debt. So this sacrifice was required as a debt. Before you could give a free will gift. The Bible uses a lot of metaphors for sin and salvation. A number of different ones. And one of the most prominent metaphors the Bible uses. Is the, is a legal metaphor. One in which there is a contractual obligation. Covenant. Anybody heard that word? A covenant. When someone owes you something. It's a legal obligation. That's why we sign mortgages and, and loan papers with small print. When you take on a debt. You take on an obligation. The Bible uses this very same metaphor for sin. That's why Jesus prayed, forgive us our debts. When we sin, we acquire a debt that is beyond our ability to pay. We acquire a debt that's beyond our ability to pay. Back to the tribal elder. In this offering, just like we saw the last time in the other offerings... He placed his hand on the animal's head and cut its throat. Bloody things, this, these sacrifices. Cut its throat. But unlike before, the priest did not sprinkle the blood that he caught on the sides of the altar. Remember that? That was a common thing. On all of the other sacrifices, the blood was sprinkled on the sides of the altar. Not in the sin offering. The sin offering used the blood more prominently. The blood was emphasizing the, the aspect of ransom for life. The Bible even uses those words, ransom for your life. Rather than being sprinkled lower on the sides of the offering, or on the sides of the altar like the other offerings, the sin offering, the blood was emphasized, elevated, by putting it on the horns on the four corners of the altar. That's why I gave you that detail at the beginning. But now this is interesting. Had this man not been an elder in the community, had he just been a, an ordinary person in, of the tribe, because it was the sin offering, he still would have, the, the blood still would have been elevated because of the ki- type of offering it was. But in that case, he wouldn't have had to bring a male animal. He could have brought a female animal. Any idea why? A male animal is more valuable than a female animal. It seems that because this offering emphasized atoning blood more than the other ones did. That the more prominent the sinner, the more prominently the blood was used. This is a fascinating fact. The horns of the altar elevated the blood from the sides of the altar. A male, the blood from a male animal elevated the prominence of the blood even more than that of a female. In another case, the blood gained even more significance than this. Like when a whole group of elders would bring a sacrifice on behalf of the entire community. If the entire community sinned, like you remember when they made the golden calf and worshipped it, this would have been one of those cases. The elders from all of the tribes would have brought an animal as a sin offering for the entire group. In that case, that was a much more prominent sin. The blood the blood had to be elevated and emphasized even more. In that case, the priest did not put the blood on the horns of the altar of sacrifice. He turned around, walked into the tent of meeting... Going in what direction? Who was in the tent of meeting in the most holy place? God's presence. He was emphasizing the blood by bringing it closer to God. He walked into the tent of meeting up to the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place was a, represented the throne room of God. Before that curtain was the altar of incense. So the priest would walk forward... And before the altar of incense and before the curtain, he would sprinkle the blood on the floor seven times. And then he would take another step forward and put the blood on the four corners of the altar of incense right next to the throne of God. There were only two cases where the blood was emphasized to this degree. The first one was when the community sinned together. The second one was when the high priest sinned. That was the only two times the blood was emphasized that to that degree. These are tiny little details that we easily miss as we're rushing through our reading to get through this, these ceremonial laws on this more interesting stuff, isn't it? These tiny details are extremely significant, even in a New Testament context. The sanctuary is showing us that there are degrees of sin. Degrees of Of sin. Not based on just the seriousness of the sin itself, which is also apparent in the offerings, but also based on the prominence of the person committing the sin. So, what does that mean? Does it mean that some of us are held to a higher standard than others? Does it mean that some of us are more accountable than others? Sounds that way, doesn't it? That sounds like it's the principle in view here. Do God's principles change? No. His principles do not change. So that means that we need to apply this to ourselves today. How would that same principle apply? That the sin of some is greater than the sin of others? Now, let's be clear sin is sin. Period. Any sin committed by anyone is enough sin to require the blood of Jesus to pave that debt. But just like it is a more serious matter for a six-year-old to throw food on the floor than for a six-month-old to throw food on the floor because he knows better, right? The same way when a... A sin, when it's committed by a professed child of God who knows better, is a deeper sin. It is a more serious problem than the same sin committed by someone who does not know better. And the sin of a more mature Christian is more serious than that of a less mature Christian, just the same way that it is a more serious action for an adult to haul off and punch someone than for a child to do it. And the sin of a Christian leader is deeper still. Jesus said as much in, uh, in Luke 12, 48. Something to the effect that to those who much has been given, much is required. Degrees of sin and accountability. That does not apply just to pastors and priests and elders. 1 Peter 2, 9 says that who is a priesthood of believers? Every one of us, we are a holy priesthood. Everyone is a leader to someone else. Maybe it's at home, maybe it's at work, wherever it is, everyone is a leader to someone else. The higher your prominence in any capacity, but especially in spiritual leadership, the more your sin affects other people. Thankfully though, The blood of the Lamb of God is sufficient to cover any sin and any sinner. Praise the Lord for that. This is deep stuff we learn from the sanctuary. And we could study each of these lessons in much more depth, but we need to go on. When you study the sin offering, it sounds like pretty serious business. It covered things. It was a powerful enough sacrifice to cover things like murder, adultery, breaking the Sabbath, Taking God's name in vain. Not honoring your parents. You know, the Ten Commandments. For every time that anyone sinned, they had to bring this sin offering to the sanctuary to sacrifice for them. And and Leviticus lists all sorts of, of these sins, like having a baby. Like having an infection. Like finding mildew in your house. Hold on, right? These aren't sins. Can't even change these things. Well, that's true. But a sin offering was still required for them. Why? That's why this, pu- this offering was also called a purification offering. These were impurities. The question, in my mind anyway, though, is why did God put these kind of impurities on the same level as outright sin? That didn't make a lot of sense to me until Roy Gain, one of Christianity's leading scholars on Old Testament laws, explained it. And he explained that the common denominator of all of these things, of all of these impurific- impurities that a person could have, ceremonial or otherwise, was that they are signs of mortality, the results of sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. Mortality. Infectious disease is a sign of mortality. Destructive mildew is something you didn't find in the perfect earth. Dead corpses, obviously there. Even the loss of blood in childbirth. It was not the child that was the problem. It was the loss of blood in childbirth. These are signs of mortality and death. Things that were not intended to be. Not the results of acts of sin, mind you, okay? There was, you could not point to any specific act that caused this specific sign of mortality. Mortality is the result of the disease of sin, not specific acts of sin. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they contracted the disease of sin, they had only committed one act of sin. But if actions were the only problem here, it seems to me that they could have confessed that and everything would have been back to what it was, right? But the problem isn't nearly so shallow as that. And this is a vital concept the sanctuary rituals teach us. We do not need to be rescued only from our acts of sin. The wrong things that we do. We have a much deeper problem than that. We are born with a hereditary disease of sin. A cancer that is inside of us. We try to refrain from acts of sin, which we should do. But too often, when we have some small victory in this area, something inside of us, some temptation comes to us that makes us feel like we have earned some degree of righteousness before God the sin offering shows how misguided that kind of pride is it's like putting makeup over melanoma it might look better but you haven't touched the cancer you could call this priceless sin but priceless in the opposite way that we normally use it you can't attach a price to a fatal disease there is no way to make even partial restitution for this kind of sin. Humanly speaking, sin is a fatal, absolutely incurable cancer that every one of us has, a practically limitless debt on our souls. From a human perspective, it's a hopeless situation. And the fact is, is that it's only when we come to see clearly this fact The hopelessness of our ability to heal ourselves or to do anything to repay the debt of our disease that God can finally take over in our lives and do what we cannot do. Humanly speaking, sin is a fatal, incurable disease, but nothing is impossible for God. So now that I've emphasized our helplessness and paying this impossibly high debt. Now I want to qualify it a little bit, okay? I remember when I was barely a teenager riding in the back of someone's old, rickety, rusty station wagon. It was so old that the sun coming in through the windows over the years had turned the the vinyl, the hard vinyl inside, brittle. You could scrape it off with your fingernail. And it was kind of fun to do. You could tell that over the generations of kids that had written in the back of that car, a lot of them had left their graffiti and things in the side of that door panel, and so in boredom I joined them. But I made a mistake that the others did not. I wrote my name. A few days later, my dad got a call from a very irate owner who told my dad that I had destroyed his pristine 30-year-old rusty station wagon. I obviously didn't have money and my dad had to pay for that door panel which wasn't cheap and I to make restitution to my dad did a lot of extra work around the house for quite a while for the damage that I had done I created a debt that I couldn't pay so my dad paid the debt for me and then for my own good he required that I repay him, at least to a small degree, in sweat. As insignificant as the actual value was that I returned to him, the lesson that I learned was not at all insignificant. Although in our sin we create a debt that we cannot repay, it is important for us to make as much restitution as possible simply because it's the right thing to do. Not because we're working for our salvation. We've already seen that's hopeless. But in making restitution for our sins, we participate in reconciling our relationship to God by reconciling our relationships with each other. Because it's the right thing to do. This was the idea behind the last offering we're going to look at. The guilt offering. This sacrifice could be described as a sin offering, but with a price. An offering where the sinner could do something to atone for his wrong. Again, now let's be clear that this, there is no possibility of flattering ourselves that because we're able to make some restitution for a particular sin that we have done anything to improve our unrighteous condition before God. That's not the point here at all. No matter what we do to right an individual wrong, we forever and always have that dark pall of our unpayable debt. Within us, right? Our our sin disease eating away at us. So we don't want to get confused there. The guilt offering was unique in that a person could not bring this offering until he had made restitution for his sin. If you stole something from your neighbor, you had to pay it back plus a fifth of the value 20%. Pretty simple, isn't it? Makes sense. That's how you made atonement for your sin against your neighbor. You paid it back with interest. Only then could you bring your guilt offering to God to make blood atonement for the sin that you had committed against God. Your sin was not just against your neighbor. It was also against God. And the guilt offering wasn't just for making sins right that were against each other, but also for those that committed against God only. For instance, if someone broke one of God's commandments, even unintentionally or unknowingly, he was still guilty. We just read that, right? Leviticus 5.17. You know, I've actually heard people saying, or heard of people saying, don't tell me what God wants me to do because I don't have to do what I don't know about. You know, ignorance will save me from doing that. That kind of argument doesn't even work in our own court system, does it? We, we say that. Ignorance is no excuse. And apparently, God feels sort of the same way. If a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though he doesn't know it, he is guilty and will be held responsible. That's what it says there, Leviticus 5.17. But, of course, now I'm confused. Doesn't the Bible say in other places that God overlooked people's ignorance? Sure does. Acts 17.30 in the pa- uses these very words. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands every- people everywhere to repent. Is that a contradiction? In Leviticus, we are held responsible for ignorance, and Acts, we're not held responsible for ignorance. Old Testament, New Testament? There are people that would like to think so, but no, that's, that's not what it is. Apparently, we are held responsible not for just what we know, but for what we ought to know if I run a stop sign, the judge is not likely to let me off the hook just because I didn't see it. But he is very likely to let me off the hook if there was no sign. In the one instance, I should have known. In the other instance, there was no way I could have known. Two different kinds of ignorance. One God can overlook. The other he can't. It was when someone broke a law that he should have known... That he was to bring a guilt offering to make token restitution for his disobedience or his misuse of something holy. In that passage we just read in our scripture reading was both of those things. Disobedience or the misuse of something holy. When God declares something holy, is he serious about it? These offerings that people brought were considered holy. Legally, under the terms of the covenant, these offerings already belonged to God. Right? God gave them all of their animals. But he required certain of them to be returned to him in the form of offerings. Does that sound familiar? God gives us 100% of our income. He requires that 10% be returned to him in the form of tithe. And an unspecified amount in free will offerings. Is God serious about what he has declared holy. There's a story in the book of Acts that's pretty sobering. Ananias stood before Peter bearing a very generous gift. It was most of the money that he had gained from selling a piece of property and he was donating it to the apostles for the work of Christ. He was giving a sacrifice What did we discover sacrifice means last time? It does not mean to kill and burn. It means to make sacred. The very fact that he was bringing it, he was making a sacrifice, it was holy. Ananias was mishandling a holy thing. Not because he was bringing the gift, but because he was lying about it. You see, he was telling Peter that this was all of the money. Not just most of it. If he had said this is most of it, it would have been a different story altogether. He lied about it. He was, as the Levitical law termed it, swearing falsely about a holy thing. And you know the story, right? Ananias crumples right then and there. Like a bolt of lightning or something, he died. His wife came in, told the same lie, same thing happened to her. Pretty swift judgment. Is God serious about the way we handle holy things? Yes, he is. From the study of the sanctuary, it appears that when we dedicate something to God and don't follow through, or if we neglect to return to God the small amount he requires, then we are mishandling a holy thing. Fortunately, though, the guilt offering provided forgiveness for precisely this sin. This is not an uncommon thing that happens. If we mishandle something holy, like if we quit returning tithe for a time or if we borrow it because we need food or rent or something like that the principle we see in the guilt offering is that we return it with a fifth of the value 20 percent ever thought about that before kind of interesting and then we confess our sin and we will be forgiven it's wild stuff we learn from the sanctuary i would never have expected to learn anything like that from the sanctuary. In the book of Luke, Zacchaeus, the cheating tax collector, hung precariously in a sycamore tree in his desperation to see Jesus, all right? Luke 19. When Zacchaeus or when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, "Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today." So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, "He has gone to be the guest of a sinner." But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. No 20% for Zacchaeus. He was going for 400%. And what did Jesus say? Today salvation has come to this house. In effect, Zacchaeus was giving a guilt offering. The guilt offering teaches us that not only must we ask forgiveness for our sins, but whenever possible, we must make right the wrongs we've committed. And this is good news here. Something else we learn. When a sinner made restitution as best he could to the one he had wronged, be it a fellow human being or to God, and he brought his guilt offering, he went away free. Not only from the sin, but from the guilty feelings that accompanied it. A lot of people miss this. He made things right, brought his offering, and he was forgiven, and he left his feelings of guilt at the altar. What did the altar represent? you remember? We've looked at it before. The cross of Jesus. The lesson in the sanctuary, after making all right that you can... Come to the cross of Jesus. Give yourself as the living sacrifice, as Romans terms it, to him, and you are free, not just from the sin, but from the guilt that accompanies it. Leave them at the foot of the cross and walk free. The guilt offering shows us that we don't just give our sins to Jesus, we must also give him our guilty feelings as well. To hang on to guilty feelings, which you can do if you choose to, to hang on to guilty feelings is frankly a faithless condition. It's awesome stuff we learn from the sanctuary. Let's just quickly review: when we sin, we create a debt which we can't pay. This is just what we learned today. When we create it, when we sin, we create a debt that we can't pay. Number two, all sin carries the penalty of death, but not all sin is equal. There are degrees of sin. Number three, there are also degrees of accountability before God. The more prominent the person, the more effect his sin has on others, and the greater the prominence of atoning blood. Number four, everything that illustrates mortality and death is a sign of the disease of sin among us. Every time you see this stuff, let it remind you of why it's here. Number five, we have very little control over acts of sin and absolutely no control over the disease of sin we are helpless to change our condition even a little bit. That knowledge should break our spirit to the point that we will finally throw ourselves on God's mercy because it's the only way out. He can do what is impossible for us. Number six, if there is any conceivable way to do it, we have to make right the wrongs we have done to someone else and to God. Number seven, we must make restitution for any holy thing we mishandle. Number eight, we are guilty of breaking God's law, even if we do it by accident or out of ignorance, and we have to repent when we discover it. And finally, when we confess and make restitution as best we can, we are free. Not only from the sin, but from the guilt, and we must leave our feelings of guilt at the foot of the cross. When Jesus sets you free, the Bible says, you are free indeed. Do you have guilt? For something that you have done or maybe not done, something that drags you down, even though you maybe.
0: Thank you for joining Pastor Jeff Scoggins today for worship in spirit and truth. We would love to hear your thoughts about the program and your financial support is also greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you these kinds of programs. Tell your friends they can find the program Spirit and Truth right here on this station. Stay tuned for contact information and more details from your local station to follow. Until next time, keep your mind fixed on Jesus.
1: This is Pastor Jeff Scoggins. Thank you for listening to Spirit and Truth. Often listeners contact me or the station wanting to know how to get a copy of a specific program or more information. All of these programs are archived as podcasts, and many of them are on video as well. You can find relevant links at my website, www.scoggins.biz. You will also find books and Bible study resources there as well. So if you didn't get to hear one of these programs all the way through or missed one in a series, you can find it by visiting scoggins.biz. That's S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S dot B-I-Z.